Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us today for Church Online. It's good to know that so many of you are watching or listening to worship each week. Hopefully, we'll find that we're able to worship together one of these days soon, but we want it to be at a time that's safe for all of us to do that. Last week, we began this new teaching series using one of the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, as the basis of our study together. And I had a couple of people ask me this week, if you're teaching on the creed and saying it's important, then why don't we say it every Sunday in worship? The short answer to that question is not that we don't see it as important to understanding our faith. It's just that as Redeemer was growing steadily in the mid 90s and beyond, we discovered that a lot of folks who were joining us were from marginally churched backgrounds, some even with no church background. And one of the stumbling blocks for people who haven't been brought up in a traditional uh, faith background is sometimes liturgical elements that can push them away because they feel they don't know how to participate, they don't know what to say as some others do. We also were moving to a more modern worship style and more traditional liturgical elements don't really connect in the same way in contemporary worship, which focuses heavily on the music and the message. Does that mean the Apostles' Creed is any less important? Absolutely not. It will always be a foundation stone in our understanding and expression of our faith, and we will find some times to use it in worship by I'll do my best. I know it has meaning for those of you who grew up reciting it weekly. We do include it in our materials that are part of our membership orientation class. And I'm sure it's included in some different ways in our teaching with youth, especially in confirmation. As I said last week, I chose it as the basis for this series because it reminds us of how great God is. And right now, we need to place our faith in the one who can give us hope in times when life seems to be falling apart around us. God's authority is found in the Word of God, the Bible. And that's what we preach, and that's where our hope is ultimately found. But the creed can help reflect the light of Scripture to us, can help us to put into words what we believe. I had one parent this week tell me, that watching church online had some benefits in their house. It enabled them to pause the message if there was something they needed to discuss or didn't understand and then continue. You can't do that in church on Sunday morning. I'm telling you that because we'd love to hear from you about how this is working in your home. We're looking for good ideas that we can pass on to others. So with that as a background this morning, let's remind ourselves of the words of the Apostles' Creed before we get into today's message. If you don't remember it or don't know it all, I would remind you that you can download the message notes and it will be printed there for you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today's message is entitled, No Other God. And we have several scriptures, but we're focusing today on two scriptures from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and then the Old Testament book of Exodus. In case you didn't know, or maybe didn't remember in all the confusion of the past month or so, we are going to be getting a new pastor on our staff this summer. Her name is Reverend Debbie Thomas. Debbie and her husband Paul and their son Aaron have been busy packing in hopes of moving to DeWitt sometime in June. I'm excited that they are coming, and I know that you will be too when you have a chance to meet them. In preparation for her move, I've also been using this last month to make room in my office because we're going to be sharing office space for a while. I'm going to be working between the DeWitt and St. John's campuses, and she will be spending more of her time here on the DeWitt campus. I've spent several days sorting through papers and files and trying to decide what books to keep and what to let go of. It's not my favorite thing to do. It's tiring. It's taxing. After 31 years here at Redeemer, I've got stuff. Actually, I've needed to do this for a long time, and Pastor Debbie coming in a month has forced me to work a little harder at it. I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff, but there is one box I'm saving labeled important. These are some documents that have historical significance for the church or ideas that I can use when I'm coaching other churches or pastors, things I just can't get rid of yet, important stuff. Last week, we began this new teaching series called I Believe In. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying together one of the earliest statements of faith by Christ followers, the Apostles' Creed. Last week, I mentioned that this creed talks about what's important to all of us as believers. It tells us what's essential, the biblical elements necessary for a strong Christian faith. Its brevity is its beauty. It's not weighed down with a lot of confusing verbiage. This statement of beliefs is historically rooted and widely accepted across many Catholic and Protestant or non-Catholic churches as the most concise expression of our historic faith. When we begin to sort out our values and our beliefs, the Apostles' Creed is in a category marked important. It teaches us the foundational affirmations upon which our lives and our beliefs as Christian people rest. Take one look at the Apostles' Creed and you'll notice that it is ruthlessly Trinitarian, meaning it is centered on three affirmations. First, the Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Then it affirms, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And finally, I believe in the Holy Spirit. When we affirm the creed, we are immediately thrown into the central mystery of the Christian faith. God is revealed in three persons, and we call that the Trinity. 
I want to begin today by acknowledging that the idea of the Trinity is a mystery. We are trying to comprehend something that is incomprehensible. And we are trying to describe the indescribable. We are like the Sunday school student who was working intently with her crayons and paper when the teacher asked, what are you drawing? And the child answered, a picture of God. The teacher responded, God, no one knows what God looks like. And with childlike confidence, she said, they will when I get done. See, anyone who dares to speak of God must begin by acknowledging that all the words about God that we have are incomplete and that none of us dares to have the arrogance to think we can fully define the identity of God. In the 16th century, an Anglican mystic by the name of Richard Hooker said this. He said, our safest eloquence concerning God is our silence. It's a reminder that could put preachers out of business. Four centuries later, Karl Barth, a German theologian, reminded us that in and of our human nature, we do not fully know what we're saying when we say the word God. The only way we know God is through God's self-revelation. But a finite human mind cannot totally wrap itself around an infinite God. We can't pin God down like a butterfly under a microscope and say, there, now I've got it. Believing in the Trinity is not an attempt to say, we've got God all figured out. Rather, it is the response of the church to God's self-revelation. In creation, he is God the Father. In history, he is Jesus of Nazareth. And in our present experience, he is the Holy Spirit. It is the formula by which we describe our experience of God, and it says two important things. The first foundational truth that we affirm in the Apostles' Creed is that there is one God. Biblical faith rests on the radical monotheism, the belief in one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. The whole biblical story of faith revolves around this God who says in Exodus chapter 20, verse three, uh, 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. There was a time when I thought that teaching this truth was needed as a response to atheism to explain why it makes sense for us to believe in the God of the Bible. But as I think about this affirmation in the context of our modern world, I realize that the primary struggle we face is not with atheism, but with polytheism, even though there are a lot of non-believers in the world. You see, the dilemma of our time is not what it means for us to live without God, but what it means for us to live with too many gods. Puny little gods who compete for our ultimate loyalty. To claim belief 
in the God of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Jacob, of Moses and Jesus, is to dethrone all the trivial gods to which we so easily give our allegiance. Recently, I read an article that illustrates this point. It talks about a study which was released last month out of the recently launched Cultural Research Center based at Arizona Christian University. It is called the American Worldview Inventory, and it is the first of what will be an annual report from veteran researcher George Barna, who is the CRC Research Director. According to this new large group survey of people in this country, we are told that only an average of about 6% of Americans in today's culture possess a biblical worldview. The survey asked 51 worldview questions to examine both what people believe and how they conduct their lives. And here are the results. Those, those who attend more conservative or evangelical Protestant churches typically have a higher biblical worldview. But the numbers were lower for those in mainline Protestant churches. Only 8% of United Methodists had a biblical worldview, and only about 1% of Roman Catholics held a biblical worldview. Born-again Christians, people who accept the Bible's teachings regarding sin and grace and salvation, were three times more likely than the average to have a biblical worldview. However, the fact that not quite one out of five born-again adults holds a biblical worldview highlights the extensive decline of core Christian principles in America over the last several decades. Americans who identify as Christian but do not profess to know Christ personally as Savior comprise about 54% of the United States population. Very few of that group hold a biblical worldview. Now think about that. Less than one-tenth of one percent of Americans who say they're Christian actually hold a worldview that is rooted in the Bible. Even a quarter of a century ago, those numbers were much higher. But since then, we have seen a steady reduction. And the current level is the lowest since beliefs have been measured. And then George Barna adds this. If you truly believe something, you integrate it into how you live, and your lifestyle reflects your beliefs. As a result, our worldview research always balances examining both what we believe to be true and how we translate those beliefs into action. The societal shift toward non-Christian worldviews like postmodernism and Marxism and socialism and secular humanism and modern mysticism is clearly reflected in our values as a nation. Citing previous research, Barna went on to explain that the dominant values in the United States today are things like acceptance and comfort and control, entertainment, entitlement, experience, expression, freedom, and happiness. 
These contemporary values highlight the profound contrast from previous eras in which more widely accepted biblical worldviews resulted in things like civic duty, hard work, humility, faith, family, moderation, and the rule of law. Their conclusion is this. Unless America experiences a steady increase in people reflecting a biblical worldview in their lives, America's future is more likely to resemble that of nations characterized by moral and behavioral chaos. And what we are experiencing in our nation today is a secular worldview, and it will not change until we replace the cause of the prevalent thinking and behavior. But some of us are caught up in that secular worldview, aren't we? We place a lot of value on the gods of wealth and materialism and money and greed and alcohol and drugs of various sorts, of celebrity, internet, you add to the list. For us to affirm the creed is to hear Jesus asking, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Some of us worship the God of pleasure. And for us to affirm belief in one God is to hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Some of us follow the God of power. And for us to affirm faith in the God revealed in the cross is to hear Jesus say, but many are the the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the, the greatest then. Or the greatest among you must be a servant. Some of us affirm the God of pride, believing we're better than other people. But for us to worship the God of the Bible is to hear the Spirit say, from one man, he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. To affirm what we believe in one God is to strip bare all the altars that we erect to lesser gods. It is to kneel before the God who says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. Now the second foundational truth that we affirm in the Apostles' Creed is that God has been revealed to us in three persons. As followers of Jesus, we go into the world commissioned in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I've heard people try to explain the Trinity in different ways. One explanation compares it to water, which is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. But water can be experienced in three different forms, a solid when it's ice, a liquid when it's water, and a gas when it evaporates. It's always water, but we experience it in three different ways. 
And that's not too bad as analogies go, but it may be too analytical, too objective, too cold, too distant for some. The story of, Abraham, uh, the story of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the Bible teaches us that God is experienced in relationships. In that sense, we might say something like, we are our own person, but we are a son or a daughter to a parent. We are a husband or wife to a spouse. We are a father or mother to our children. We are one person, but experienced in different relationships. And so it is with God. The Christian faith affirms that God, the God who is known to us, is the God who created the planets and the universe, the God who gives life and breath to all that exists, the God who is the very ground of all of our being, the God who is one, almighty God, and we can know him. First, he is known to us as our creator, the God who conceives life, the source of all that is and all that ever will be. Second, the eternal God entered into human experience as the son, our older brother, Jesus of Nazareth. In him, we experience the living God in human terms. And third, God is present with us as the spirit, present in our fellowship, alive in our worship, taking up residence in our soul and providentially at work in our world. One God experienced in three different relationships. I know this is not an adequate explanation of the Trinity, but it provides some of us almost as many questions as answers. But at least it's a side door into the mystery of God's self-revelation. The critical factor is that the God we affirm in the Apostles' Creed is revealed to us in profoundly personal terms. The origin of the Apostles' Creed was focused around baptism in the early church. Early on Easter Sunday morning, uh, the first and second century Christians would wade out into the water, and they would be asked if they believed in God the Father Almighty, and the candidates would respond, I do and under the water they would go. Then they would be asked if they believed in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and they would respond, I do. And under the water they would go a second time. Finally, the candidates would be asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they would respond, I do. And under the water they would go for a final time. With each affirmation, the candidates for baptism would submerge themselves in the water, signifying the surrendering of themselves to God, as well as the purging, the cleansing of all other gods, as well as binding themselves to this three-person God. Each time they would rise from the water, their new identity was shaped by their affirmation of faith. And that's still what it means for us to reaffirm the creed. When we say these ancient words, we are renewing our baptism. We are reaffirming our identity. We are pledging our loyalty. And we are offering ourselves anew in a relationship with this God who comes to us in three persons. 
So what's the application of the Apostles' Creed to our lives today? The past few months, we have been in a struggle, the likes of which not many of us from baby boomers on down have experienced in our lifetime. And yet one of the good things perhaps that has come from this pandemic is that in a recent poll, nearly half, 44% of American adults believe that the coronavirus pandemic is a wake-up call from God. And as I write this, more than 746,000 people have already been infected by this virus in the United States alone, and more than 39,000 have died. And the numbers keep rising. Shutting down the economy has cost millions of people their jobs and threatened many businesses. And at least one-third of those surveyed see the current crisis as part of the last days predicted in the Bible. And there's a feeling that this country, in this country, that Americans need to embrace faith, if not turn to, toward religion. You see, Americans in lockdown become anxious, and understandably so, millions of people are turning to God, to the Bible, to Christian broadcasts for answers, some for the very first time. There's been a heightened interest in spiritual matters. This may be the most important silver lining in this whole crisis. The results are clear. This unprecedented global Crisis is causing Americans to start reading the Bible, start listening to Christian teaching, watching church online, having conversations about faith with family and friends. For many, these are new behaviors. And there's something about a crisis that always seems to drive people to think about spiritual things. We saw it after September 11, 2001, even though it was for a short time, and we're seeing it again now. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul tells us they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Twice in verse 19 here, Paul uses the words obvious or clearly see to describe God's self-revelation to all people. Then in verse 20, he adds that the truth about God is so clearly seen in nature. We can say it this way, everyone knows there's a God. And the people who say they do not believe in God are simply deceiving themselves. God created all that we see around us. He created the sun and the stars and the moon and the planets. He created the comets and the asteroids. He created the quasars and the pulsars and the black holes of space. Scientists estimate that there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And they estimate that there are more than 100 billion galaxies, each with at least 100 billion stars. Now just imagine that if you can. The Bible says God hung each one of those stars in space and he calls each one by name. According to Psalm 147 verse four, he counts the stars and he calls them all by name. 
No wonder. The Bible says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. See, God left his fingerprints all over the universe and we have to be blind not to see them. We are not left on our own to decide who God is. He revealed himself in nature and he reveals himself in the human heart. Christianity declares that God supremely revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And if we want to know God, we must come to him on his terms through his son, Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That verse isn't very popular today, but truth isn't determined by majority vote. Hebrews 11.6 says this very clearly. It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The Apostles' Creed begins with the words, I believe in God. And it's for a good reason. It's the biggest risk you'll ever take. If you've never met him, I challenge you to give him your heart. Give your heart to Jesus here and now. Trust in Jesus and you too can have a relationship with God, the God of the universe, right now. God rewards those who truly seek him. It's not an easy road, but there is gladness along the way and there is joy at the end of the journey. Start seeking God with all of your heart and your life will never be the same. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the truths and encouragement that it contains. We know you are faithful to your people. You were faithful to your people Israel despite their many failings and we trust you to remain faithful to all who are called by your name in our time. And I pray that you would use each of us in these dark and difficult times when the world seems to be spiraling out of control. And may we never forget that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises to a thousand generations. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.